Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James, coming out of Sarah Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. We are walking through God's Word one chapter a week, and today we get to Exodus. This is Genesis. Today we get to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters the burning bush and he has a wonderful interaction with God. If you've not read Exodus chapter 3 in the recent past, go ahead, press pause, read it, and then we'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in God's Word. So Exodus chapter 3 begins, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, it's very likely that because Moses has not had interactions with God before, as he's looking back and as he's writing this down and collecting and collating all these written records, this is uh, that would be when he's put in the mountain of God, um, this place, Mount Ahoreb. Uh, another name for Mount Sinai is moving the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. We read about him last week. Uh, last week he was named Ruel. Uh, a couple of different theories as to why he's called uh, Jethro now. Moses has brought honor and a, and a great potential for his family's future, and, and, and Jethro can mean abundance or superiority. So it could well be that he's uh, Moses now coming from his Egyptian royal upbringing. Jethro feels like his family's on the up, and he's changed his name accordingly. We don't know for sure, so we can't say for sure. We shouldn't say for sure. So Moses is out looking after the flock. He's moving them around, uh, looking for pasture. And he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God, another name for Mount Sinai. And we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out in the midst of a bush. This is attention grabbing. If you're walking around the desert, the wilderness, and there's all of a sudden a bush that's on fire, that's not being consumed, we would probably do and say what Moses did. In verse 3, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And then, as he does, God calls out to him of the bush, Moses, Moses, and his response is just like Abraham, just like Jacob, just like Samuel. He says, here I am. And then the voice, God calling out of the bush, says to him, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy Ground. I read a wonderful insight into this um, maybe a couple of years ago now that that was as close as Moses was ever going to get. Take your shoes off. Don't come any further. Don't come any closer because the ground is holy because God's presence is here. And Jesus, with his divinity and his humanity, has bridged that gap. The ground is still holy between us and God because he is an altogether righteous and holy God. Because of the sinless, spotless, and supreme sacrifice of Jesus, and, and in the fact that in his incarnation he forever wedded humanity to his deity, we as believing humans can now stand on this holy ground. I thought that was a great insight that I read. And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, Moses, we said uh, last week that he identified with the Hebrews. He identified as a Hebrew in that conflict between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. He identified with a Hebrew, one of his people. 
So he would have known about the God of his father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So Moses knows who God is. And when he realizes that that's who he is talking to, he hides his face and he was afraid to look at God. And I think that reverence, that, that seeing yourself in the cold light of day in comparison to the awesomeness of God does produce that in us. He was afraid to look at God because in that moment he knows that God is who God is. He knows of all these accounts and stories where God has shown himself, revealed himself, acted in the lives of his dad, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those family stories, so to speak. And because Moses knows that's who he is talking to, he can't look. It's not a shame thing, it's more of a reverence thing. And that's still very, very true for you and for me. When we see God in right perspective, who he is, it should be almost impossible not to view ourselves rightly as a kind of a poor and worthless sinner. And then in verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Really interesting there that it's the action, the impetus, the beginning of all of that stuff starts with God, doesn't it? I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard I know those sufferings. I have come down. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's just, a, I think it's the first time in the Bible we hear this phrase, a, a land of milk and a land flowing with milk and honey. And it, it communicates that they're going to a place of agricultural prosperity. You're going to have lots of herds and flocks, therefore flowing with milk. There's going to be abundance, an abundance of flora and fauna and therefore bees and the honey that comes. It's just going to be a place where things and people thrive. We've got to remember that the Bible pretty much start to finish uh, is written to a very agricultural and agriculturally minded people. Jesus often used agricultural uh, images and motifs in his parables. You know why? Because that's what people understood at the time. So this is a, a, a great way of God communicating to Moses and, and then the people, bigger picture, what this promised land is going to be like. It's going to be a place where you will thrive. It's going to be a place where you will have everything that you need. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. And he continues and he says, uh, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's going to happen by God's power, not by Moses' power. He's not saying, um, all right, Moses, come, you go down to Pharaoh and bring the people out. He says, I will send you 
to Pharaoh. He's going on the authority of God. He's going with the power of God. He's going to do the work of God for the people of God. And that's really interesting and very uh, important to remember. Also very, very interesting in this passage and something that I've never really noticed is if you look back between verses 7 and uh, seven and 8, God makes a couple of promises. So he says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians, as number one, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey. There's two. Then in verse 10, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. He doesn't say to Moses, you're going to bring the people out and you're going to take the people into this promised land. And I read this week that interestingly, while God promised the people two things, he only commissioned Moses to accomplish the first because God knew Moses would not enter the promised land. And if you want to read more about how that happened, uh, you can read Deuteronomy 32, in particular verses 48 to 52. So Moses hears the plan and he hears his commission. And he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God says to him, I will be with you. And you think that'd be enough. I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Again, we said, I think it was in the introduction to Exodus, that the first half of the book is all about their deliverance. The second half is all about their service and their worship. You can easily translate that word serve as worship as well. So they're being delivered out of Egypt. And then you're all going to serve God on this mountain. You're all going to worship God. So you're being delivered from bondage and sin and oppression. You've been delivered from this to a life of serving God and of worshiping God. And lots of times with Exodus, we get so wrapped up in the Exodus, the, the exit, that we forget that the second half of the book is pretty much all about, all right, now you're out. Now you've been delivered. Your attitude of gratitude is going to drive you towards a life of service and of worship. So Moses doubts and God says, uh, well, I will be with you. And as a sign that I'm going to be with you, when you've brought them out, you're all going to come back here and worship and serve me. And then Moses says again, look, you know, look, if I come to the people and say, God spoke to me. They're going to ask, what's his name? Who spoke to you? What do I say? And then God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God said this also to Moses. Said to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Lots, lots, lots could be said about this. Uh, I am who I am. It's a testimony to God's self-existence, his uncaused existence and, and, and being. 
It's uh, where we read in our in our English Bibles, Lord, spelled capitalized. Uh, that's usually where we would read Yahweh uh, in a Hebrew text. We could say a lot and a lot and a lot. It speaks about God's self-existence. It also means more than that. It speaks of his, his name as his, as his character, as his essence, who he is. You can also translate it, I will be who I will be. So there's a future faithfulness element to this name as well. So both of Moses' objections, you know, look, uh, who am I to go down there? What if the people don't believe me? They're both answered with lessons on the nature and character of God. The first one, I will be with you. He is faithful. He is true. The second, who shall I say has sent me? Tell them that the I am, the great I am, the Lord has sent you. And then Moses gets a little bit more of a specific commission, so to speak, some more detailed instructions. So the first thing in verses, uh, let's see, 16 through to 16, 17, 18. Look, you've got to go to the leaders of the people. Go to the elders of Israel and tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me. It carries a bit more weight than saying I had a dream, I had a vision. And then relay the message to them, I observed you and what has been done to you, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So go to the leaders. And then God says in verse 18, they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders, the next bit of the instruction, shall then go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, so they're now putting things in terms that people can understand. Remember, Egypt was this massively polytheistic culture. God's everywhere for all kinds of situations. Go to Pharaoh, go to the king of Egypt and say, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. There's no mention there of a return, but they're putting it in terms that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, would have understood, please can we take a couple of days off to go and do some religious things to the God of the Hebrews. It's very, reminds me of what Paul wrote when he said, uh, I'm trying to be all things to all people. To the Jews, I'll talk like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'll talk like and behave like. They're, they're putting things in terms and in ways and in phrases that their hearers would understand a bit more easily. But we read uh, in verse 19 that uh, God knew that the king of Egypt would not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. That means that God is going to intervene. He is going to take action. He is going to get personally involved. He sent Moses, say this, go to this place, speak to that person, but He's not going to let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'm going to get involved personally and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he'll let you go. So go to the leaders, go to the king, and then go to the people. 
We read in verse 21, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. A couple of different ways of looking at this. Some people think this is kind of a, a partial compensation for the last 400 years. I'm not sure if that really stacks up. 400 years of oppression and slavery. Uh, here's some jewelry and clothing for your departure. Uh, others see this as a very providential move so that when we're out of Egypt and we're in the wilderness and we're setting up the tabernacle, this place of temporary movable, this movable temple, so to speak, this place where the Spirit of God can dwell uh, in the midst of his people. You can read about that in chapter 35. So when they set that up, they've got resources and they've got decoration. And, and So there are a couple of different ways to look at the fact that they're left with some jewelry and some clothes and, uh, and, and whatnot. So next week then in, in Exodus chapter 4, things kind of continue a bit and, and God proves himself again to Moses and demonstrates, look, this is me, this is going to work. But I think the main thing, the main takeaway from Exodus chapter 3 is that God promised two things to the people but only commissioned Moses with one. He knew that Moses was going to be a great leader for a great purpose for a season, but he wasn't going to be the ultimate leader that God's people needed for all tasks and all seasons and all situations. I think that pattern shows itself again and again and again through the Old Testament. Great leaders, great saviors, we read in Hebrew, great deliverers from all kind of different circumstances and situations, but it points towards the fact that even though these people were so great for a season, for a time, they still fell short and there was still the need to look forward in future faith to the promises of Genesis 3.15 where God is going to send somebody to put this right ultimately and finally. And you and I know looking back that that Messiah, that promised coming royal ruler is Jesus. Next week then on Walk the Word, we will get into Exodus chapter 4. But until then, God bless.